นโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวอะระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวอะระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวอะระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนวัสสSo, for those of you that uh, weren't here or haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, just to bring you up to up to date with uh, who's here and what's happening, uh, um, notice the big hole left by Ajahn Sawang. Uh, he's gone back to Thailand. His teacher, Ajahn Anek, uh, is uh, not so young anymore, and he's uh, very keen to have Ajahn Sawang go back at least for a period of time to help him. So. We hope he'll be coming back again before too long. But meanwhile, we have Ajahn Go, which is great. Uh, Ajahn Go has come to join us from Italy, uh, at least for a, a few months. Uh, Tanhiriko has uh, gone off to Santa Chitarama uh, to be with Ajahn Chandapalo for the rainy season retreat, Awasa. And we'll see him come back again uh, October, November. Samanera Nyanamoli has uh, turned from a caterpillar into a butterfly. <laughs> He's uh, now Bhikkhu Nyanamoli, and we're very happy about that. And also, we have uh, those of you who haven't met Anagarika David from South Africa or Scotland, depends what you fancy, who's joined us. We're very pleased about that too. So uh, yes, we just come back from the uh, lovely gathering at Chitters Monastery, where uh, Samanera Nyanamoli and Samanera Adicho took their upasampada and were received as fully ordained bhikkhus into the monastic community. And that was great. It was a lovely gathering. Uh, many of the monks and nuns from Amarawati came down and joined in. Ajahn Smeta, of course, was there as the preceptor, and it was just a very nice gathering. Was, um, we hadn't had an ordination ceremony in Chithurst for, I think, about seven years. It used to be the only place we would do the ceremonies. Um, in the very early days, when this, we, weren't, we were very unsure about how the community was going to be shaping itself, and we had the good fortune of the Venerable Ananda Maitreya from uh, Sri Lanka staying with us on a regular basis and very ancient, venerable, noble and uh, well-informed Mahatera from Sri Lanka and when it came to talking about ordinations we had decided we would get his advice on how to put down a Sema boundary and we had all sorts of fancy complicated ideas of where to put it out in the forest and so on he said, oh no need to bother with that, let's just do it out here on the croquet lawn so we went out and right there and then and converted the croquet lawn, patch, I'm not sure what they call croquet places, um, to a, uh, a seema. And so that for many years that was where we held the ordinations. And miraculously, every day we had an ordination there, it was sunny. This time, for the first time ever, at two o'clock, the appointed time for the Upasampada, 
the clouds opened. I mean, just thunder and lightning and just bucketing down with torrential rain. And uh, we were all sort of standing and looking at each other, except for the Thais. Like Ajahn Suang, he was absolutely trilling with delight. The Thai lay people who were there to offer things were very, very... Because for them, it's, uh, it's always the sign the day was uh, there celebrating. When it rains on a wedding or an ordination or a festival day, for them it's a great blessing. So they were happy and we were mystified. But uh, anyway, it passed, like all things. And um, by about 2.30... We were able to get on with the ceremony. I only made about three mistakes in my chanting, which um, could have been worse, could have been better. But then as one gets on in years, you know, the faculties fade and, um, and one can be forgiven. In fact, when you reach this stage of training, people forgive you for a lot of things, which is an advantage. It was lovely spending time in Chithurst. I had a good chance to spend, have breakfast and lots of cups of tea and so on with Ajahn Suchito and catch up on what's going on for him and the Chithurst community. And then Ajahn Tania down in the new retreat house, uh, not retreat house, sorry, the nun's new cottage, uh, Rochana Vihara. They go down there and have, enjoy a cup of tea and conversation with Ajahn Tania and Ajahn Kovida. And the nuns are very, very happy there in their new place. It makes a lot of difference for them to have uh, some more space. And then at Amarawati, uh, we, we, had a, we spent a couple of days at Amarawati on the way back. Oh, it was good to also have a chance to uh, speak with Ajahn Sumato. He invited me over for breakfast, which uh, ended up being a, a three-hour long affair. And that was marvellous. Yeah, really good time to talk over lots of things, um, starting with ageing, because as senior monks, when we get together these days, we all start talking about who's taking omega-3 tablets and who's on statins. And <laughs> Ajahn Sumedha was tired. He'd just come back from four weeks in Russia and uh, in, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, teaching retreats, lecturing, and then also out in Siberia for two weeks. The travelling uh, seemed to take its toll. The Dhamma of... Uh, old age, sickness, uh, and, of course, eventually death. Um, was at Amarwati, also in Chittas, hearing about Ajahn Rato. Many of you probably know Ajahn Rato, a very popular retreat leader at Amarwati. Um, I think he's about 46 years old, Japanese monk, and uh, has very acute um, uh, cancer of the, pan- of the bladder and just had a major, major operation where his bladder and uh, prostate were removed and major five or six hours of uh, operation surgery and and so that's not a, not a small thing. And our good friend Nick, also many of you know, a Penny, our office worker, her husband Nick, Pierce also at the moment going through the, uh, the onslaught of chemotherapy with his cancer. So old age sickness and... Um, and death is always there as well. So, but anyway, the, the teaching, the, the way the Buddha presented these things, and the reason that it's right there, you walk over the front doorstep every time you come into this Dhamma Hall, and if you notice on the corner of the, the doorstep there, you have uh, old age, sickness, and death, and uh, renunciate, summon up these, these four signs that, 
were the inspiration for the Buddha himself in his uh, going forth uh, to find out what what really matters. You know, we, we we all know the, the, the relative concerns of life, like health, like wealth, uh, like comfort. And these things, I say, relative. Because we, uh, they don't offer us, they don't afford us uh, ultimate security. And these things change, pass away, disappear, can be taken away from us. And what the Buddha intuited and, and longed for was a source of unshakable security. You know, is there a way of uh, being? I mean, he wasn't interested in topping himself. It wasn't the idea, you know, you kill yourself and get out of this awful mess. Is there a way of living in this condition that we experience ourselves to be in without being, without feeling like we're victims to the changing conditions? Yeah. Doesn't matter who you are, even if you're a prince in India with all the convenience and all the luxuries, and, or if you're, you know, your average well-off Westerner these days, which is seriously comfortable with all the conveniences that we have. Uh, none of these conveniences really protect us from the vulnerability that we, we have. The, you know, all the comforts, the conveniences, the physical ones. When the heart and the mind are disturbed, then who wants running hot water? You know, who wants uh, instant tea bags? I mean, who, who wants these conveniences when your heart is really uh, troubled, when the mind is really confused? So this was the motivation, the Buddha's inspiration for, for seeking the possibility of real freedom, real sustainable security. And so that's why we have it on the, the front door there. So as to remind ourselves that these, these are not bad things. This is, this is very important, a very important message. This is why they're called Devadutas or celestial messengers. Now these are to be viewed positively. These are to be viewed, to be held in some sort of a, in some way whereby we get the message. The way we hold our experience, as we all know, has a huge influence on how we receive our experience. If we hold the experience in a negative light, then we're going to view it accordingly. So these things are called these. Apparently, uh, obviously, actually unpleasant experiences, old age, sickness and death, uh, the Buddha encouraged us to train ourselves so as to see them in a light whereby we can get the message that, that this life, as comfortable as it can be, as apparently agreeable as it can be at times, and it certainly can when you're with friends and everything's just great, it can be, you know, like on a beach in Croatia, all on your own and <laughs> where I was last month, I mean, it was really incredibly agreeable. And however, as occasionally it is, that's not that's not the ultimate condition. That's not the whole story. Um, there's also this other side, you know, the, not just the physical side, also the emotional side, the loss of friendship, you know, falling out between people, the misunderstanding. One of the easiest things to do, it seems to me. Uh, to, to misunderstand, even though people, we all long for friendship and we all enjoy kindness, 
Yeah. It's a strange thing that we actually somehow manage to spoil friendship and forget about kindness. And we all suffer as a result. So this predicament we have as human beings, this challenge to live a life fully, including all the difficulties, not just to not just to try and avoid the difficulties, but how to turn them around uh, as, a, as a spiritual challenge. And so thank goodness we have this teaching. It's not just, uh, it's not just a fairy tale that's, that's telling us that everything's going to be better when you die. You know, that's a kind of, a, I think I've, I've found that a very strange thing to, strange story to hang on to, that you, know, you put up with this miserable ordeal and then when you die it's going to be lovely. Even if it was true, I don't think it's a very good story because, you know, this is what we've got. <laughs> so anyway, the Buddha was, was, uh, didn't, uh, didn't have any time for that story at all. So we're very grateful we have this teaching. And so it's how to train ourselves, how to, how to train ourselves so that we learn life lessons. Old age, sickness and death. All the troubles that we have inwardly. And there's a, there's a question here this evening, which somebody has written. You quite often teach that when sitting, we should be here and now in the body and non-judgmental. However, the Buddha talks about five ways of dealing with unwholesome thoughts, ranging from thinking about something else to, in the last resort, clenching your teeth and suppressing the thoughts. He seems to suggest, therefore, that we should be judgmental in classifying thoughts as unwholesome and also that we should uh, intervene to remove such thoughts. Could you explain this apparent contradiction, please? Hmm. So indeed, it, uh, it is an apparent contradiction because uh, there's no inherent contradiction there. Uh, this, as the, the questioner points out, the Buddha taught uh, the particular difficulties we have with uh, unwholesome thoughts. How do we train to address these unwholesome thoughts? And he does, in a, in a specific discourse, uh, give these five ways of addressing unwholesome thoughts. And a very helpful discourse and, and goes through the ones it says in the question. The first one is is trying to replace the unwholesome thought with something wholesome. And Buddha gives the image of a carpenter taking, a, taking one pig to knock out another pig. You try and replace the thought, the unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought. And, and then the second point, he goes on and says, well, if that doesn't work, well, then you, you contemplate the loss, contemplate the disadvantage, like if you've got an unwholesome thought that's troubling you, distracting you, then, then contemplate the, the disadvantage, the loss, to see how actually by following this thought, by engaging in this, I'm actually, am I benefiting or am I losing out you know, to engage in contemplation that way? And then, uh, and then the third one, uh, basically just to try and, if that doesn't work, then try and, just try and avoid it. Like, try and just like, you know, just look the other way, close your eyes, don't see it. You know, just, just avoid looking at it, avoid the, putting, investing any attention into the distracting thought. And then the fourth way, the Buddha talks about how to actually you know, slow down. If that doesn't work, then you just try and slow down the whole process. Try and slow down the whole 
business, the whole thinking process, try and engage the momentum of it and just work directly with it on that level. And if that doesn't work, well then yes, the fifth one uh, as it points out is, um, is being very willful and the image the Buddha gives is like if you've got a kind of some nutter out in the marketplace causing trouble or whatever, you know, he's out of his head on he's been smoking pee or whatever drug there is around these days and he's out of his tree completely and causing trouble so you want to hold him down you know you don't you know engage and say shall we share our feelings and <laughs> let's talk about this <laughs> you know if somebody's completely off their rocker you've just got to hold them down to stop them from hurting themselves or hurting others and there is a probably as many of you sadly know there are times like that in practice yeah you just have to use that kind of effort now does this conflict with the teaching that uh that I always give, and as I said in the beginning of the meditation this evening, judgment-free awareness. And the question is, is suggesting that the Buddha is asking us, inviting us to be judgmental, to judge these states. This is unwholesome. We've got to see it as unwholesome and replace it with something wholesome. Well, as an analytical, analytical process, a mental process, that's accurate. That's absolutely what the Buddha was talking about. And it's very helpful that we have these things pointed out to us, specifically practical ways of, of approaching uh, the things that come into our mind. However, for many people, actually, those, those five points are already quite subtle, and even too subtle. Yeah. Um, just to be able to be present enough to work consciously and directly with our mind is already quite a tall order. For a lot of people. And even these five suggestions, I was going to say hints that the Buddha gives, of ways of working directly, engaging directly with mental processes that are unwholesome and, and obstructive and difficult. If we feel behind these things to the, the quality of effort that we bring, so this is the this is this way of engaging life, you know, to replace this thought with another thought. You know, you've got a, an unwholesome thought and you replace it with a wholesome thought. Or to um, contemplate the loss, how you you're losing out of thing. If you feel if we feel behind this activity, this this engage to the way we're approaching, the basic underlying view, what does it feel like? Because it's, it's been my discovery, my own practice and observation for many people over the years that even though we might be heeding what the Buddha said and, and picking up these, uh, these points, that the way we go about it can be, if you like, tainted. It can be like tainted with an underlying view as I've often spoken about, that life shouldn't be this way. It's kind of I see it as a mental disorder that comes out of the kind of uh, the way we've developed, the, the evolution that we've gone through uh, as, as, as Westerners. I don't see it as a particularly Asian dis disformity that we have, uh, this compulsive judging mind. Um, you know, uh, many times people come to me and talk about their difficulties and, and I say, well, I think you've got CJD. I say, what do you mean, CJD? I mean, we, we've all heard of CJD. 
And I said, I have no idea. Yes, you have. You, all of us. It's just terrible. Compulsive judging disorder. I mean, it's a, it's a serious disease. We're all infected with it as Westerners. It's, I mean, can we stop our thinking? This, this, this teaching here, the Buddha points out, when you've developed these five, you can choose to think or not think, or think whatever you want to think when you want to think it, and not think what you don't want to think when you don't want to think it. That's, when you've done this teaching, that's what you can do. Well, there's not many of us there, really, are there? I mean, to be able to have that degree of, of um, agility, mental agility, it's a pretty tall order. So the reason I uh, give emphasis to this judgment-free here and now body-mind awareness is because it's, it's very often the case that behind whatever effort we're making, we have this underlying negative view that life shouldn't be this way. You know, somebody asked me, was it on Friday night, you know, after all these years of practice and you know, I've been meditating, and, and yet when I go for a walk in the woods, as wonderful as I think awareness is, as wonderful as I know awareness is, that my mind is just spends most time just with drivel. You know, I, 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 I convince myself it's important, and all these thoughts that I have about this and that and, and so on, I, it's, on one level, you know, it all seems terribly important, but when I sit down, I'm just exhausted from thinking, and I realize I just wasted all my time. It wasn't anything worthwhile at all. And so why do we do it? Now, this is after years and years of practice. Well, this is uh, one of the reasons why I do uh, try to try to uh, emphasize, to encourage an awareness of this underlying view with which we approach practice. If it's not free from compulsive judgment, then even though we might be on one level doing the right thing, like trying to replace an unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought, or, or trying to see the loss in what we're doing and so on, this isn't Underlying view saying, it's wrong. I shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be having distracting thoughts. Well, you know, you can read into this, the Buddha said, you know, we shouldn't be having distracting thoughts. That's true. On one level, we shouldn't be having distracting thoughts. On one level. But does it really help to always be ramming that opinion on ourselves? I shouldn't be thinking about fish and chips. Well, it's true, I shouldn't be thinking about fish and chips on one level. But if the reality is that I'm thinking about fish and chips, does it help to be going on to myself about you shouldn't be thinking about fish and chips? It's that simple. It's how to, what works, that's the thing. It's what works, that's the point. Does it work to be compulsively judging? No, I don't find so. To be skillfully discerning, of course, you know, that's, so, you know, I, of course, you know, I wouldn't want to in any way suggest we shouldn't be exercising to the nth degree our capacity for skillful discernment. And so I, I suppose in a way it's just, it's, in a way it's almost semantics, this, this issue that, you know, it's not, I'm not talking about uh, not analysing in a skillful way that's helpful. What I'm trying to point to when I say judgment-free awareness is to recognise where there's that emotional investment and our judgments. If our judgments, are, if our analysis and, 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 and discernment is uh, equanimous, then yes, it'll help us. Yeah. Classic Theravadan Buddhist teaching. Samatha vipassana is the meditation. That's, you know, everybody knows that. However, 
If our hearts are rigid with compulsive judgment or cold with uncaring, uncompassionate attitude, yeah, does it really work? I mean, there's a, a one meditation technique that uh, is taught, I know, by some teachers, which uh, where they use noting. And and uh, you're meditating on the breath, and and then a distracting thought comes up, and it's like uh, you're planning is what you're doing. You're planning something. You know, you, you're planning to have a conversation. You're going to go and say you're going to go and see the meditation teacher and have an interview, and so you're planning what you're going to say to the teacher. But this is not really necessary because the teacher's not a maniac. He doesn't need you to perform. Basically, just sit there and share your life. You know what's happening in meditation and see if you can help each other somehow. So you don't really need to plan, so actually, okay, let go of planning. But it comes up again, and so the encouragement is to use noting to deal with this compulsive tendency of mind. So you, you label it, planning, planning, planning. And this is the way that's using attention to note, to kind of wrap it up, if you like, and, you know, like, like, a, like Ajahn Chah used to say, it's like, it's like a spider, you know, a fly goes into its web and then it comes up and spins a little web around it, wraps it all up and then sticks it away to eat later. And so with, uh, you know, we can use this noting technique, like you kind of use mindfulness to kind of encapsulate the, the state that's there and, and, and to get a little perspective on it. Okay, very skillful. Can be very skillful. However, um, I know, I, I've met people who've used this te- technique extensively, that it's not just uh, planning. Planning. It's planning! You know, like it's like it's like you get a machine gun out, planning, 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 planning. You got to kind of mow this thing down. <laughs> well, the technique might be you know what was taught, but what's the energy behind it? That's the point. Yeah. Is it a compulsive-driven judgment? I shouldn't be planning. So, well, we all know we shouldn't be planning. Does it help to be? Bringing that energy to it? No, it doesn't. Uh, as been my my own experience, um, some years ago now, to to experience the benefit of what a profound difference it makes when we're not caught up in that compulsive judging. It just and the way to not get caught up in it is uh, is to simply see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, it happens when you know talking about practice to people. I say, well, you know, have you ever looked at uh, you know how judgmental you seem to be about where you're at in practice? And they, oh yeah, that's no, oh, I never noticed that. Oh, that's really helpful. So, and then five minutes later in the conversation, they they use the word uh, they're talking about something. And they say, oh, my body posture is no good. Oh, I shouldn't be judging. Oh, I shouldn't be judging. And they, well, yes, but isn't that judging? Yeah, and so we've got to get more subtle. And this is quite possible. And this is, this is actually a, 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 a tremendously liberating insight. This is, it's like old age, sickness and death. These are not bad things. But like I said in the meditation instruction in the beginning, when distractions come to us, these are not bad things. We only, if we say they're bad, well then we frame it in a way that actually is not very helpful. This is something bad, we've got to get rid of it. Well, if we accept we don't have any bad things, there aren't any bad things. Everything is just so. There aren't any bad things. There aren't, you know, distracting thoughts. Distracting thoughts are evil. Well, distracting thoughts, you know, we don't have to see them as, as something bad. This is just, this is the stuff we learn from. Planning. Okay, that's what we learn from. 
Thinking about fish and chips, that's what we learn from. Whatever's arising is just so. To try and put a gloss on and say it's all good stuff, well, you know, that might work for you, but I think it's just helpful to say it's just so. If we're, and that's the other thing, that if we're here and now, we're not comparing this moment with other moments. Yeah. What difference does it make? It makes a big difference. You know, like, to be, even to be saying, oh, practice is so difficult, I'm having such a hard time. Can practice be really difficult if we're not comparing this moment with the past? It's only difficult if we have the memory of how it was otherwise and we're really investing in that. Now, the memory, of course, we don't want to just, we're not talking about having a frontal lobotomy and getting rid of all of our memory. That's, you know, memory's got its place, but again, the relationship with the memory is very important. If we're not investing heedlessly in memories, well, then even when, you know, we're having to make a lot of effort to be present, to not engage in conditioned, heedless ways that lead to more suffering with what's happening for us. Even if that's true, we don't have to fall into the, oh, it's so difficult. If it was helpful to uh, say, oh, it's so difficult. If that was helpful, well, it might be okay, but I don't know how helpful that is to say, oh, this is really difficult. And then the other aspect of, you know, we also encouragement of here and now judgment-free in body-mind. That uh, the encouragement is is to remember the whole being. Yeah. Part of our evolution again as Westerners, the kind of education we've gone through, you know, programming, conditioning that we've gone through. Nothing wrong with it, it's just so. But, you see, there's the cause. You get educated to think, 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 and to analyse, discriminate. Uh, and there's, the more you can do this, the more times you put your hand up and say, I know, yeah, yeah, the better person you are, the more value you have. And then as you start to reach my age, and the faculties are just not so smart anymore, and like Nyanamoli here, he's much more valuable than I am. He's much more valuable than I am because, you know, some of these things that, you know, telephones and computers and PDAs and PDFs and MP3s and, and KJBs and whatever else, <laughs> just can't figure them out. The faculties don't, don't work like they used to. Well, according to our conditioning program, then, as I say, you know, I'm not of any, I'm, my, my value is, is, is going down. I'm not so valuable. But uh, hopefully we all realise that's not the reality. And otherwise we'll have Nyanamoli on the chair here. And I'll be sitting over there, which he won't do anyway. Uh, these conditioning, the conditionings that we have to take us out of the body and into the mind actually give us a very false picture on reality. Yeah. And, and it's the way we've been programmed. And, and so I think we need to basically address that in our, in our form of meditation. 
not to just let the meditation be another uh, habitual splitting off from the body, which is aging and can be uncomfortable, and going to... I mean, it's, the mind is so fascinating. I don't know if you find... I just, I just love thinking. It's just, just thinking and dreaming and, you know, oh, oh, it's just some of the delicious fantasies compared to the reality. I mean, the reality of what we've got to put up with. I mean, it's just so despairing a lot of the time. The smells of the world and the irritations, the disappointments, the frustrations and despair and all the rest of it. It's just, whereas my fantasy world, I can have such a good time. However, you can get, it's, you know, it's like getting drunk, you know, just a little brandy and it makes life a lot better on one level for a wee while. But we all know that, you know, too much brandy is not too good. And likewise, too much thinking, too much fantasy is not too good. Um, so we need to be reminded, I think, to come back to this, this moment, here and now, body, mind, and judgment-free. But as I start off by saying, these are, this is addressing something, if you like, that's almost prior to this teaching that the Buddha gave of how to deal with the five distracting thoughts. If we're already in an in a equanimous, balanced place, then we can apply these teachings. But if we're not, well, we want to, we want to just keep checking to see, is this working or is it not working? You know, we don't just hammer away at our noting technique or hammer away at our distracting ourselves from, from compulsive thoughts by you know, using some other wholesome thought. It's just feeling, coming back and feeling, where are we coming from? Is there an underlying attitude there that's something wrong with me? that I shouldn't be this way. I find there is. I find it's just there, layer after layer after layer. And, uh, and I think it's wonderfully helpful. I just, it's, again, it's not, it's not bad to realize this stuff. It's also something helpful to remember that when, when we see, when we see, for instance, where we're caught up in, 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 in such a thought, like there's something wrong with me, yeah. or like in the meditation instruction, we see that we've been lost, if at that point we ram a judgment on and say, I shouldn't be this way, or I shouldn't have been this way, does that help? I say it's extra. It's extra. And so this encouragement to cultivate a judgment-free here and now body-mind awareness is so as to let go of everything that's extra. Yeah, so the quality of awareness, the feeling awareness, the free feeling awareness that we're bringing to our effort, whatever it is we're dealing with, yeah. It's pristine. It's as good as we can get. Yeah, because it's, it's such a pity that we, we spend a lot of time. You know, it's like you know, it's like sometimes you, you read about how you come across people out in some place in Africa where they've um, they've got loads of mud and uh, and so on, but nobody's ever taught them how to make an oven. You know, they just don't know how to make an oven, and so they've been busy burning down acres and acres and acres of forest to have very, very wasteful stoves. I, mean, I just read this story recently somewhere. You know, they've just burnt down a huge amount of forest to, um, to cook the daily food, where if they just had a little bit of education, they could realise they can really optimise on the fuel they burn, whether it's cow dung or, or trees or whatever, they can really optimise on it, get maximum fuel benefit out of it. Yeah. 
and not burn down so many trees. And what does it come down to? Well, little education. And so likewise, we're dealing with this condition, the, you know, the condition of our hearts, the condition of how we, how we meet our experience. You know, uh, the education is very important. If we're just hammering away at a technique, thinking that's all there is to it, but we're not examining the underlying views, the, the feeling attitude, particularly on this occasion about uh, the compulsive judgment. If we're not, not recognizing this, well, then we can be wasting a lot of energy, and that's a great pity. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. I hope this is helpful in your contemplations. Mm-hmm.